You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. As you know, if you're a regular listener, the Jazz Session is currently on its annual summer hiatus in July and August. If you are a member of the Jazz Session, you're getting a weekly track of the week, which is a new hiatus thing I started this year, where an artist talks for a few minutes about one of their tracks, often from an album that hasn't even been released yet, and then you get to hear the music. And it's uh, been pretty cool so far. So if you want to get those, you can go to thejazzsession.com slash join and become a member today. But I did want to pop in and say hi to the general listening audience a few times during the hiatus. And today I am really excited to be joined by a person from one of my absolute favorite podcasts. I sometime earlier this year discovered Eat the Rich, uh, which is a really, really fabulous podcast, pretty much about what sounds like it would be about. And uh, Dwight, who is one of the hosts of that show, uh, turned out, I kind of suspected to be a jazz fan and then turned out to absolutely be a jazz head. So I asked him if he wanted to come and do one of our uh, shows where we talk about a record. First of all, Dwight, welcome to the Jazz Session. What an honor, Jason. Thank you very much for having having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, the pleasure uh, is all mine, brother. And you, when I asked you which album you would like to talk about, when you sent me the, your album uh, of choice, I was so excited because this is one of my all-time favorite records. And to learn that it was one of your favorites, too, was really great. So will you tell the listeners what you chose? Yeah, happy to. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I was kind of... I, 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 in fairness, I gave it a bit of thought for like a week or two. I'm like, you know, what's a good album to talk about? And there's there's a few, but there's always one, especially at this time of the year, that ends up popping into my head and I end up listening to quite often. And uh, maybe it's a bit of like, um, you know, feeling of nostalgia for being in the country or something like that or or, or at the beach or something. But Shadows and Light, uh, the Joni Mitchell album from uh, 1980 is the album that I suggested. And I, I was thrilled. It was so hilarious and thrilled that you thought that it was, a, it was one of your favorite albums as well. That's so cool. how you first got into this record do you remember where you first heard it it wasn't long ago if i'm honest um it was probably three years ago or something i mean how i probably got to it was through either pat metheny or jocko 
because I'm a huge uh, Pat Metheny fan and the Pat Metheny group, and I've been a fan of theirs for for a really long time, and I kind of grew up hearing those albums played in the house, um, as well as like Weather Report and and other Jocko projects. So I, as 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 usual, as it happens, you know, one night I you know I put on some nice headphones and I'll go to YouTube and listen to live music. Like that's one of the th- ways that I unwind and really enjoy myself is just listening to live music. And there's a plethora on YouTube. And I came across this album and and because it's accompanied by a it was a video production. And That's it was right. kind of yeah. done originally sort of like as a video production. I, I don't know if you I know it's kind of important on this program to explain like the origin of the of the show and what or of the origin of the, the album and what um label it was on. But it was interestingly, this was a live uh, album recorded at the Santa, Bar- Santa Barbara Bowl in September 1979, but wasn't released until September 1980 on Asylum Records. And, and you know, depending how you first heard this album, the tracks that you heard are totally different. If you first yes, if you first heard this on an LP, if you first heard it on a CD, if you first heard it on a cassette, if you first watched it on a VHS or a DVD, there's a different track listing for most of those formats. Like there were songs that I didn't even realize were on this album until years after I first heard it, Same. because I hadn't seen the film. I just heard you know the record, and I heard it in a particular format, and then I realized like, oh, there's like a whole Jocko solo section and all kinds of stuff yep. that I did not know existed. What a quagmire! What if and, and I wonder the 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 um, reasonings behind that and and their choices. I wonder if that was something done by Asylum Records, if it was done by the artist, or what. Seems odd. Yeah, to me. it's so funny to me because this this album almost feels like. Um, so I have I honestly have literally no idea how old you are, but I'm 46. So um, I I was collecting music, you know, at the end of the LP era, into the cassette era, into the CD era, and this album to me feels very much like it perfectly tracks the shift, and then also from VHS to DVD, and then the album is kind of bounded in by how much time there was in each format. And so it's like little bits of this album kind of come into the public eye as the formats change. And well, okay, now we have 90 minutes and before we had 70 minutes. Oh, well now we have a hundred minutes. So here's a couple more songs. It almost feels like it evolves as technology evolves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me what hit you about this record when you listen to it. I mean, yeah, obviously you said you were a fan of Pat Metheny and uh, Jocko. And actually, um, if you don't mind, I will just take a second right now just to tell people who aren't familiar with this record who's on it, because Please. listeners of the jazz session will know every name. Uh, of course, it's Joni Mitchell who plays guitar and sings. Uh, Pat plays guitar, of course. Jocko plays bass. And then Don Elias is on drums. And he and Jocko are the only two people who were actually on the record that they were touring at this time, which was the Mingus record, which... Joni recorded yes. with Charles Mingus. And then uh, Lyle Mays, a uh, frequent partner in Crime of Pat Metheny, plays keyboards. The great Michael Brecker is on saxophones. And then on a couple tracks, the Persuasions uh, sing vocals as well. So uh, yeah. now that we got that out of the way, tell me what kind of struck you when you when you heard this record. I mean, you know, I don't know if it's helpful to go chronologically because uh, there's there's a few tracks that, I mean, to me are just I, I don't listen to as I go through it now. There's a few of them that are misses, but it's interesting. Like when it st- when it starts, it, I I don't know. If, it, like the chord structure starts with Lyle Mays on like on the uh, electric piano, and it starts like the Star Trek Next Generation theme song. <laughs> I don't know if you yes. noticed that, but it's it's just like kind of creeps in on those like high kind of synth notes, and it's I mean 
it's interesting. I think like a lot of the 70s and early 80s music gets caught in a time capsule because of the sounds of the organs and keyboards at the time. Absolutely. And so like when I heard that, I was just like, oh, da, 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 da. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in the beginning, I like the kind of art house-ness of it because they play portions of audio of Rebel Without a Cause, I think it is. I think so. Yeah. And then they go in and then they play like part of a, I guess, a music video or live performance of I'm Not a Juvenile Delinquent by Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. And I'm just like, look, I knew that Joni Mitchell was like a really, I mean, a real artist. And I wondered like who was behind like the production of that. And uh, I, maybe in, if I did some bigger digging, I would have found that out. <laughs> but the, with the first track that they go into, which is in France, they kiss on Main Street. When they kind of roll into it, I just imagine sitting there in the Santa Barbara Bowl and thinking, this is exactly what I came here for. Right. They got Jocko high in the mix for the entirety of the album. I mean, very, very prominent in the mix, doing everything that Jocko does best with like ghost eighth <laughs> notes and stuff like that. It's everything you want. Don Elias is funky as hell and right in the pocket, right in the groove. Pat Metheny with the kind of high guitar but soft flourishes and stuff. And Lyle Mays um, kind of with these long chords and perfect punctuations. And, of course, like what I found really interesting was like I think the entire album Joni Mitchell uses an electric guitar. Yeah. And I like how it's it's almost like she's got such a solid band. The, the entirety of this ensemble is a solid band. She almost plays the the, the chords like a tambourine. Like the choppiness of the chords, like she's on the eighth notes for the majority of like the you know these songs that are in four four or something, and it's just they roll into in France they kiss on Main Street and it's everything you want. I'm like I, I turned on this album and this is exactly what I was hoping for. That's that's how it starts to me. I completely agree, and it, it's. I think this is a really great showcase uh, for Jocko because uh, this song and this album, because it allows him to do both of the things that I think he was a master at. One of which is the you know a million notes all over the place kind of thing that he could do very musically, but another which, at least in my estimation, he maybe gets a little less credit for is actually holding down a bass line, and there you know he does a ton of stuff where it's. You know, it's very noty and um, I don't know if I want to say flashy, but it it certainly it it brings itself to the attention more than the bass often does. But there are lots of moments in here where he is really just also the bass player in addition to like another solo artist. Um, and I I love the fact that that happens all throughout the record. And I think there are definitely a lot of places in here where he and Michael Brecker have like almost a telepathic oh my connection God. to one yes. another. You know, when yes. Brecker is soloing and Jocko's like, okay, going exactly where you're going. And they mm -hmm. just arrive every place at the same time. And 
I mean, you, you just want to cheer when you're listening to it. It's, I, I just, I love it. It just kind of lifts me up, you know, out of my seat when I hear it. You articulated that better than I, 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 I got a smile on my face when you said that, because that's exactly how I felt with a majority of the Michael Brecker solos on this album. It's exactly that it, you cheer for it because it's like, damn, he just nails it. <laughs> and he goes. I, I, what I love uh, for him and his playing and especially on this album is like, like the absolute fearlessness of it. He's yeah. just, he just he knows exactly where he's going and he sends it every single opportunity. And I just think that's so cool. <laughs> Um, if if you'll uh, indulge me on a small personal story, when I uh, I lived in Please. Japan twice, and the second time I lived there, I worked in Tokyo, and Michael Brecker was teaching a master class at the Blue Note, and I'm I'm also a saxophone player, and so I uh, although in a in a galaxy far from the galaxy <laughs> that Michael Brecker was living in, let me just make that extremely clear. That's mine. So anyway, I went to this master class, and um, you know everybody else there w- was a Japanese saxophone player, and then there was me, and. Master classes can take all kinds of different, you know, kind of styles and approaches, but this particular one was really focused a lot on how Michael warmed up and uh, like kind of showing us techniques for having a lot of facility over the entire horn. The, the thing about it was that he would say things like he would talk about things and kind of without playing, just hold up the horn and say, you know, show you like, OK, here's this thing and this thing. But then he would demonstrate some exercise that he did for a warm-up, and it was, I'm 100% sure it was better than anything any people in that room had ever played. Like, I, of course, I didn't know anybody in the room. Like, there were, I don't think there were any famous horn players there, but I just, like, when you would hear him play, and, you know, we were just feet away from him. I mean, we were, like, in a little circle, and he was you know, sitting there one, one point on the circle. So I mean, we were feet away from an unamplified Michael Brecker in this little intimate room at the blue note. And I just remember thinking like, I don't know, maybe I'll just, uh, chuck my horn in the river on the way back <laughs> to my apartment. <laughs> a very I'm Jocko really sure. move, a very Jocko move. <laughs> yeah. In fact, to throw your <laughs> instrument right, in a body exactly. of water. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was, uh, just, just getting to see him, you know, from that close, um, and just the, his effortlessness on the horn like it was not for him playing that horn in that moment you just got the sense that and i know this is very cliched but that it was literally an extension of the rest of his body you know yeah. that it, he didn't have to put any thought into making the horn do anything all he had to do was conceptualize what he wanted it to do and yeah. i mean that's just a level of fluency that you know few people reach i think on, on an instrument yeah i, I mean i certainly don't have it <laughs> Yeah, Let's keep going through the record and uh, uh, give me some other high points for him. I mean, I had Coyote stuck in my head all day today. There was actually there was a version that I heard where I think it was from 1975, which would have been just the year after that Court and Spark came out. But there was a video of it's on YouTube of Joni Mitchell playing it for Bob Dylan. 
Like they're just sitting oh, in a wow. living room somewhere. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Coyote, I'm not a lyrics guy. Like I when if when I listen to music, like I often even music pieces that I've heard a gazillion times before, I often have a hard time like, you know, parroting the 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 lyrics with it. But Coyote's one of the ones where it's so vivid and it's so Joni Mitchell of this kind of like beginning of a novel explanatory visuals of what's going on. Coyote was one of those songs when I heard it the, for the first time, probably from this album. Uh, might have been from Hegira when I first heard yeah, it. Yeah, that anyway, was the first place. That was it, the first Joni Mitchell record I ever heard. And because it's the first song, also the first thing I yeah. ever heard by Joni Mitchell. So. But, you know, when I heard Coyote for the first time, I was just like, oh, this is changing my life as I'm listening to this. It's just, <laughs> it was just so, like, the way that she talks about it and, like, just a, a, an, an era that, a thing you can't experience anymore, which was her, and I think if I'm not mistaken, when she was writing Hajira, it was like a period of a year or two that she was on the road quite a lot, and she was just traveling around, and a lot of the the, the, the music that we heard from that era was just kind of like a um, a journal, a, a diary of her yeah. encounters. And Coyote, I think, was just like so exemplary of it, because it's like, you know, here she is talking about this guy. This kind of this this kind of slick dude, and uh, he comes into her life, and she meets him, and then they kind of have a, a to to borrow a, a recent term, an entanglement. Um, and uh, not to bring Will Smith and Jada Pinkett into this, but, it's, but um, and it's so vivid and raunchy, and like really like not. You know, it, it, you'd think like Joni Mitchell and you think like, you know, Big Yellow Taxi or whatever. But this is like a really dirty song talking about yeah. drugs and, and let's just say like, you know, irresponsible sexual behavior or something. Like <laughs> it's And it's just like, oh, shit, this is like, you know, played in front of a you know, maybe a more buttoned up audience than you would think would listen to something like that. But yeah, I, this but this song, I mean, it's just uh, it's still every time I listen to it, I just it it still captures me. Absolutely does. Yeah, I feel the same. The track after Coyote, I think, is one of the very few examples of a set of lyrics written to a well-known existing melody about a jazz musician that are not the corniest thing on the face of the earth. Because a lot of those like, you know, hey, bird played the horn and let me sing that over, you know, a Charlie Parker solo. I think most of those I think are awful. But yeah. Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, which was a, a tribute to Lester Young, and Joni wrote these lyrics to go over it, I think is just, to me, is a, a masterpiece. And the the solos that are in it are incredible. But actually, when you talked in Coyote about painting a word picture, I think she does such a brilliant job. And again, this is of capturing a, you know, a vanished time, you know, when that scene, like the the 52nd Street scene in New York was going mm -hmm. on and musicians were interacting constantly and kind of going from club to club. And it's it's just so it's so beautiful to me. It's so it's heartbreaking, but beautiful at the same time to kind of hear her describe that in words. And then, you know, Mingus's music is a masterpiece, I think. So. Yeah. You know, you know, what's funny, too. I uh, one of the, the other albums that I considered pitching to you was Nighthawks at the Diner by Tom Waits. Oh, yeah. And this song, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, when it starts before before Joni comes in, you could almost imagine Tom Waits coming in being like, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> like <laughs> for sure. And it could have easily been a song from uh, from from Nighthawks at the Diner, in, you know, in the beginning as it's setting it up. I mean, yeah, absolutely. What 
but exactly as you said, what a picture it paints. I mean, again, yeah, she's just such a genius lyricist. I mean, we talk about Dylan a lot in terms of lyrics and being able to tell stories. But I mean, I think I think she's right up there with him, you know, just in terms of being able to to paint these incredible word pictures and, you know, song lyrics that if you just read them on the page are just as good as if you hear them sung. Very much so. Yeah, totally with you on that. What a what a track. Charlie speaks to Lester You know someone great has gone The sweetest swing in music man Had a porky pig hat on A bright star in a dark age When the band stands Had a thousand ways of refusing a black man Admission, black musician in those days. So, Dwight, can you take me to uh, another high point here on this record for you? Yeah, it's pretty easy. Um, it's the three song uh, uh, sequence of Amelia, then Pat Metheny solo, and then into Hijira. Um, I mean, damn. <laughs> Amelia is, I mean, it's a great song. For me, it's not like. There's nothing like chord changes that captures me or stop. You know, there's no twists or tension or stuff. There's just something about it that really paints a picture. And then at the end, uh, at the end, um, Matheny starts kind of creeping in with his just doing his thing. And he plays backed by Lyle Mays on the organ. He plays this, uh, you know, technical runs and great melodies as he does. And then it moves into what is my favorite song on the album, which is Hajira. It's funny about Hajira. It's just it's a reminder of a how low Joni tunes her guitars, and <laughs> and then b, you know, frankly in this in the in the version with Jocko on this, in the live version here, it's not my favorite version. I think the uh, kind of felt like he was almost taking a break on this one because he does the thing where he like does the palm slides down the neck with his right palm. Right. And uh but the the album version to me is is absolutely sublime and again I think it just conveys you into a um into a place that you've never been before and yet you're nostalgic for. I I that's Agreed. that's the only way that I can put it. I I will call out too. I think it's so cute that in the um in the album version she says, you know, strains of Benny Goodman uh coming through the snow in the pinewood trees and she says strains of Michael Brecker uh, coming, uh, you know, through the right. snow in the pinewood trees, and I think it's Michael Brecker playing a um, soprano sax, and he just goes yes. for it, absolutely sublime, yeah. masterful, just absolutely masterful. And 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 if I if I can speed through too, because it's hard for me to pick Black Crow. I tend to like music that has like high energy, and yeah, Black Crow does that. The the tension and high energy that's built up. Uh, especially, you know, when Michael Brecker just comes in and just absolutely sends it, is so cool. Yeah, this is Joni Mitchell's one metal period. <laughs> this <laughs> one performance of this song, <laughs> this is her one her one foray into metal, and then 
she, you know, the rest of her career is whatever it was. But yeah, this song, that song is deadly in my opinion. It's just, they just, they crush anything thrown their way completely. The, the band at every second of that song. It's just amazing. Yep. I guess, you know, it's just far as like, you know, sheer Jocko enjoyment, free man in Paris. Um, you know, Jocko just goes for it. He's so high up in the mix. And, you know, which is part of it was just like it was hard to hear Lyle Mays in this this uh, track, too. But I just think it's so high energy and funky and cool. I just I think it's a sublime song. I love that. And, you know, it's interesting. You were talking about um, Pat's solo in between Amelia and Hegira, yeah. and then he has some really great stuff on Free Man in Paris as well. And it, I love it because it shows, I mean, he can do even more than is on this record, but yeah. I think his range is really apparent on this record where, you know, in the in the solo between those two songs, what which essentially kind of builds them into a suite, he is, like you said, uh, you know, kind of playing some ethereal stuff with, you know, Lyle's kind of out of time uh, keyboard yes. pads behind him. And and it, he just he's kind of building up and building up. It's like this almost like angelic chorus or something that he builds <laughs> up into Hegira. Yes. And then the another side of Pat is on Freeman where he just like is just shredding. And and it's never uh, it's never shredding for the sake of, hey, look how many notes I can fit in here. But it's we've built this thing up and I have what it takes to go over the top of it and make something even more. Right. And uh, and I just love it. And I think it really shows, you know, the at least in in terms of his electric playing, I think this album really showcases a lot of the things he was able to do. And, you know, he's branched out even more, I think, since, you know, obviously since 1980, he's done a lot of things since then. But oh, yeah, um, I just I really love it. I think he really shines all throughout this record. It's funny, too, you calling that out about Free Man in Paris with with Pat, because there's a he, I, to me on this album, on this track in particular, he just plays like a professional. Like he was hired to be, right. he was hired to be and playing this song and he follows. And there's, as they're going into, they're just like the, the, the meter or two before the um, chorus, there's a little lick that Jocko does where he goes like, and then immediately afterwards, uh, Pat goes, and it's, he, it's like to right. think that quickly. <laughs> I mean, I know it's not that. It's wild. I, you know, I, I, I like quoting things, you know, in my playing and stuff. But to quote something that happened half a sec, half a second beforehand, it's just like, <laughs> there it is. That's why. That's why he's yeah, paid the big bucks. Exactly. And you know, um, I don't. I guess I, I really, I haven't said anything about this, but I mean, uh, kudos to Joni Mitchell for the band she put together for this tour. Yeah. Um, I, I did mention at the top that only two of the people on this live record, Jocko and Don Elias, who plays drums and percussion, were on the 
the actual record. Like the saxophonist was um, Wayne Shorter on the Mingus record. Mm. I think Herbie Hancock was on piano mm. and uh, Don Elias just played percussion. And there was another drummer. I can't remember who it is, but, but I really love when, you know, kind of pop and rock and folk musicians are able to assemble bands like this of people who, like you just said, are willing to be what the project needs. Yeah. Um, because these were guys, I mean, these guys were pretty huge, all of these yeah. guys at this time. Like, you know, the Matheny band was doing well. I mean, Michael Brecker and, you know, the Brecker brothers had been huge. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he was on every, you know, he'd been with, you know, Paul Simon and everything. I mean, these were like, these were big, big names. Obviously, you know, Jocko was maybe the most famous bassist alive. Yep. Um, and so to get a bunch of people at that level and say, like, okay, well, I wrote my nice folk songs. Would you guys get together and, <clears throat> excuse me, and play them with me? That, to me, it really speaks to when you are at a certain level, you can subsume your ego to the whole and that all of these guys just do that so perfectly yeah. on this record. That was that was the first thought when I first when this first came across my computer screen on, you know, on YouTube or whatever. I was like, oh, this is a super group concert. Right. That was the first that <laughs> exactly. was the first thing I was like, how could I have missed this? How How did I not see this beforehand? Because like it's it's cute like there's a some point in the DVD where um, Jocko and Pat kind of like walk up to each other and and they're kind of playing together and they're kind of bopping their knees at the same time and I'm just thinking like man it wasn't a, it wasn't more than like a few years before this maybe like four or five years that um, I think Jocko was the bassist on Pat Metheny's first album called Bright Size Life I think which is a ma- absolute just, masterpiece yeah. it's incredible I know and I was like. How cool to see a scene. You know what I'm saying? Like, how yeah. cool to see a scene that I just don't think exists anymore. Uh, not in the same way, at least. Yeah, and it. I think this... Uh, I, I'm really glad you used the word supergroup because in some ways, to me, this is like the anti-supergroup mm. because I think often supergroups are less than the sum of their parts rather than more. So like right. It's super cool to see many of the you know highest profile players. And I'm not just talking about in jazz. I mean, you know, this kind of stuff happens all the time at like, you know, rock hall inductions and, you know, the Grammy Awards yes. and whatever. And you get, you know, there's 15 guitarists on the stage, each of whom is amazing in their own right. And together, it sounds like white Garbage. noise. There's something about, first of all, there's something about a working band, but then also something about the actual selection of the particular musicians and knowing that they'll be able when combined to do what you need them to do. And so in this case, it's not just like, well, here's all the flashiest players on their instruments. This is really a band. Mm. And I knew, like, I heard this record before I really, really knew who some of these people were and, like, had really gotten into their music. I heard Joni first. Then kind of finding out from that that, like, oh, these are, like, guys all at the top of their game at this era, (laughs) and they also happen to be Joni Mitchell's backing band is pretty wild. Well said. I have I have nothing to add. That was exactly. I'm pontificating. No, a lot. That, I'm sorry. I just really love this. You're record. so right because I was thinking <laughs> as you were saying that I was thinking. You know, I remember there was a super group uh, quote super group of I think it was John Lennon, Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, and then I can't Max Maxwell who was the drummer for um, Jimi Hendrix. Something his name is something like that. Oh yeah. Oh now I can't think of yeah, his name. But yes, let's all just assume that people are screaming at their uh, podcast players. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I was just like, you know, that was fun. They they played your blues. 
you know, that was that was that must have been fun. Right. But it wasn't like a piece of music, a piece of art that I was like, oh, this will be cherished through the ages. Like I feel like Shadows and Light is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Every picture has its shadows and it has some source of light. Blindness, blindness, and sound. The perils of benefactors, the blessings of parasites. Blindness, blindness, and sound. Written by all things, devil of cruelty, drawn to all things, devil of delight, mythical devil. So we're uh, we're kind of into the home stretch, and actually, in the home stretch of this record, it it kind of takes a turn. Like to me, it kind of brings it back around. It it shows that. Uh, and assuming, and I actually don't know that this is true, but assuming that the way we see it or hear it is more or less the way it happened in the concert, then we come back around to like where in the beginning there was Frankie Lyman, like you mentioned. Now at the end, there's the persuasions and we kind of get into this like kind of throwback, like early rock, uh, you know, doo-wop vocal group yeah. thing, which I really dig. And then it comes back to Shadows and Light, which is what Lyle Mays was playing. Yes on the keyboards at the very beginning. And I love how much like uh, the, the trio that you were pointing out of Amelia uh, Matheny solo and Hey Jira, this to me kind of like makes this into a circle. Like you feel like when the record ends, if it, if the next track, if the introduction just started again, it would just be seamlessly just going forever. Like it just makes perfect sense to me. Totally. And I think what doesn't make it in the DVD, but I think does actually in, real chronology close the the concert is Joni Mitchell's solo rendition of Woodstock yeah and it is haunting to me just simply haunting it completely ethereal and kind of creates this vast space for you to understand the song and 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 I I think she wrote it because I was I was watching something I think it was originally played on piano and it was written when she couldn't get to Woodstock because she was in Chicago and she was supposed to be there with Crosby, Stills, and Nash or something like that. Anyway, she didn't work out. But she wrote that song to kind of commemorate the time. And it is just haunting is the only word that came to mind. I, I'm, I'm so sad that it didn't make the DVD because it's, to me, just one of the, the, the greatest pieces of performance on the album. child of God Walking down the road I asked him where are you going and this he told me He said I'm going down to Yasker's farm to join a rock and roll band to 
Get back to the land and try and get my soul free. I'd be interested in your your thoughts about this. This concert was played in 1979, right? And you know, so the the 80s, like the Reagan era, is breathing hot and heavy down everybody's necks at this point. And you know, I feel like the, the 79 to 80 shifts. You know, I, in one way, it's completely arbitrary because of the numbering system we've adopted. But <laughs> in another way, it does feel very real to me. Like. The 80s were, as far as I'm concerned, and of course it's the era in which I grew up, but were a very distinct thing from the 70s. Yeah. And to hear her play Woodstock as the, you know, the final song and in the final year of, you know, this pretty tumultuous decade. And then before, like, the sound of slick production and everything Mm -hmm. was all about to be on top of us. There's just something about it's almost like. You know, last one out, please turn off the lights. It's like a, kind of a thing. eulogy you know, like of this, this time. This era is done. Yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect word. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mitch Mitchell. That's That's it. the guy's name. Fine. Just popped into my Max, head. Excuse Maxwell. me for having a moment of just screaming out names. No, that's great. But uh, it's, <laughs> I love it. Of course, even funnier that I can't think of his name, given that we've said the words Joni Mitchell about 100 times in this. That's uh, right. But yeah, well, I think you're exactly well said. It was de- definitely it was sad. You know, it, it's sad. It de- definitely felt like the end of, I don't know, it felt like, uh, you know, they say that Earth dies with a whimper, not a blast or something like that. And it's like, that was that right. was the end of that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting because having spent the last 13 years of my life and then the five years before that on the radio interviewing jazz musicians and kind of chronicling the scene, I don't know, like an era like this where... Like, these were big selling shows. Like, this was a tour that sold really well and, you know, packed a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And all, you know, of course, behind the name of Joni Mitchell, but with these, like, top flight jazz musicians. And right now, um, for example, a guy who was on the jazz session a couple weeks ago is Eric Deutsch, keyboard player. Mm -hmm. And um, he's a great uh, jazz keyboard player, but right now his main gig is that he's the keyboardist for... uh, the band that is now called the chicks, formerly Dixie chicks. Um, wow. and that, you know, or I think about, um, all of the, you know, the hip hop acts who have jazz guys as their arrangers and musical directors. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, so to some degree, there is a sense of like pop acts that normal people have heard of touring with a supporting band that is partially made up of improvising musicians. And I can't put myself in 1979, so I don't really know the answer to this question. (laughs) But I wonder if at the time of this Joni Mitchell tour, what percentage of people in the audience knew who the other people on stage were uh, versus what percent just thought, well, there's Joni Mitchell and her band. Great, great question. You know, I kind of think about that like in modern times, too. You know, what percentage of people who are watching, uh, you know, a Talib Kweli show know that, you know, five of those guys in his band all have like great jazz records out? And what percentage just say, oh, well, there he is and there's his band. And I don't I can't answer that question, but I'm very curious about the answer to it. I, I think that's something that we I mean, I, I, I ruminate on that a lot and never have an answer. Um, I just never do. I mean, I think in, in general, the wages for, a, 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 a you know, your your gigging musician or your session player, I have to imagine, have decreased quite starkly. Since that time, as 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 most wages across you know all industries have um, decreased as far as real purchasing power, 
Um, and uh, I mean, if, if at the least, it certainly does not come with health insurance. So it's just it's yeah, absolutely. it's a it's a harder it's a harder life to get through in general. I mean, I think we know. And, and again, we I hope I'm not you know talking too much about this, but we, we explore this on Eat the Rich quite a bit. It's just in general. I mean, what is what is the life for us if we don't have a kind of, um, you know, a, a corporate nexus in which we can in which we can seek refuge, which isn't saying much. Uh, and I think for for jazz musicians specifically, there's just not as much of a path to success. Yeah, and no safety net. I mean, um, you know, one thing the uh, the pandemic hit, you know, what maybe two months I guess before the end of last season. So I was still recording lots of interviews as every single gig was getting canceled. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was talking to people who I'll, certainly there are many musicians who teach uh, to, you know, to supplement, well, to supplement, right. to be their income so they can pursue their creative pursuits. It's, uh, it would be nice if that was supplemental, but it's not generally speaking, they, they teach so they can live yep. and then they have the, you know, the space, the mental space and emotional space to put into making art. Um, and, you know, obviously many of them are very happy teaching, et cetera, et cetera. Assume that I've said all the caveats that I should probably say here, but um, <laughs> yes. when the pandemic hit, you were just seeing uh, like, you know, on, on the, the jazz sessions, Instagram account follows essentially only jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden there was not a gig left, you know, and everybody was playing Instagram live shows mm-hmm. and, you know, Facebook live shows. And people were looking at, uh, like I talked to one uh, musician, uh, Chad Taylor, a great drummer who was on uh, toward the end of last season. And he said, this was the first year he's been playing for a long time. He said, this was the first year I had paying uh, touring gigs in every single month of the year. And now every single one has been canceled after whatever he did in January, February, and like the first two weeks of March. Or like the guy I was talking about who, uh, Eric Deutsch, who uh, plays with Dixie Chicks, he, or the Chicks, uh, it'll take me 50 years to stop Mm -hmm. saying Dixie Chicks. Um, He said... He got the gig because he was the keyboard player in addition to his own stuff. He was the keyboard player for the jam band Leftover Salmon for years. Mm -hmm. And he got the gig with the Chicks. He uh, said, you know, they had had a very amicable parting from Leftover Salmon. But he said, I really, you know, I have to pursue this because it's, you know, their their new album is out and, you know, they're going to tour the whole world, blah, blah, blah. They played on like the Ellen DeGeneres show. And then, excuse me, everything got canceled. So now he's just sitting at home. You know, and so like that was a obviously what I hope was a very high paying gig and but it's totally gone now. And, you know, I assume he had no backup plan. And then you think of all the other people who, you know, are kind of making it with, uh, you know, club gigs and that kind of stuff. And all of that is gone. All the recording projects are gone because people can't be in the same room as each other. And nobody has a safety net. It's just all of a sudden it's just you have zero money. You have zero income. If you have anything saved, God bless you. But otherwise, you're fine. Yeah, and, and it's, te- I mean, it's terrifying. It is. I, I remember seeing kind of like early on in the quarantine, probably in like April or something, there was, um, I think it was John McLaughlin, the guitarist that uh, did yeah. like a, a I, I hesitate to say live show, but it was like he and his band, I think a four piece that were playing together. I, I would imagine they were kind of, playing their own separate tracks and recording independently and then somebody put it together and right. then they put it on because the delay time is that's yeah, a, otherwise that's the thing you can't do it you can't do it right in fact the, the closest that i saw to it was um 
Post Malone and Travis Barker and two supporting musicians played a Nirvana tribute album. And they did, they just did, oh, yeah, cool. it was very, it's on YouTube, it's extremely cool, and it was like a um, a fundraiser for, at this point, I don't remember what, but they did it in person, and I was like, that's as close as we're going to get, and I hope they took COVID tests ahead of time, right, <laughs> if they were going to sit there in yeah. the same, you know, Calabasas, California mansion to do that, <laughs> but, right. but everybody else, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to collaborate. I mean, it's, you know, we can do it with, 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 on the podcasting scene, we can do it with kind of, you know, Zoom and Skype and stuff and, and, and put it together in, in post-production, but you just, you can't do it remotely with music. And that's part of what I find so, um, attractive and alluring about live music is that there is no substitute. But the problem with that is that there is no substitute. And given the way that we're going now with, you know, the lack of, you know, uh, just the, the absolute failure of, of response to a pandemic, as we're seeing, you know, that's pushing that out farther and farther. And who will be able to be left standing that can kind of carry that yeah. torch? I, I truly worry about. I don't mean to sound dour and kind of like jaded for in, in an industry in which I don't even directly participate. <laughs> but, you know, it... I mean, but it, it's the truth. It I mean, it's just, uh, you know, I don't think there there's not a mood other than dour, other than possibly, you know, terrified or apocalyptic t to be in. Because even, first of all, right now, there's no end in sight. I mean, I think that's just a fair way to say what the situation is at this moment. Yep. Where there is, things are getting worse, not better. They're getting worse rapidly. And they're, you know, we have no, no leadership. But even in all of the other places where jazz happens around the world, where, you know, festivals happen and that kind of thing, and a lot of musicians earn a decent amount of their living in a year by spending the summer going to festivals, Americans aren't allowed to go to any of those places now. <laughs> so, you know, your passport is essentially a worthless document. And all you can do is, you know, go to a, a, you know, a few like Mexican and Caribbean resorts and, you know, the, the yep. two other countries who handle it as poorly as we yep. did. So essentially the whole festival scene is off for any American musicians yep. too. And there's no, there's nowhere to go. I mean, there's not, there's no escape from the fact that there are no gigs because even in the places where there are gigs, you can't go play them. And I look ahead. I mean, when I was doing those interviews, like in April for the season, of people who are like, oh man, all my gigs are canceled. I don't think any of us thought that in July or in November or in April of next year, we might still be having those conversations. And it's, I mean, it's it's really sobering it's to you know to look at what the jazz world looks like now. It's bleak, I, and I I worry about what that's going to look like for the future. I mean, I don't have I yeah. don't have the sense that for a lot of us that are trying to weather this and keep our individual expertise is going how do we pass that down to apprentices right and how do we how do right. we how do we perpetuate our individual expertise it, it it's not looking good without us being around each other um especially again like you know for for live music there is no substitute for that and um no i maybe it'll come out in a different collaborative way that that the Zoomers have figured out that we're just too freaking old to be able to understand. And I, I, I truly hope that that's the case because I got a lot of faith in the Zoomers. Zoomers, what up? Um, but uh, uh, at this moment, I, I, this moment, I certainly don't know. Yeah, I mean, within five years, everyone might just have a brain implant that allows us to all seamlessly collaborate in real time. And, you know, then we can all see the image in the virtual concert 
venue in our heads. And all this will be solved. As long as Elon uh, Musk can monetize it, then uh, (laughs) I see no problem. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's right. The Elon Musk concert series. For those those Uh, that aren't familiar with Eat the Rich, that was sarcasm. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, that's actually a perfect segue. Um, before we wrap up here, uh, will you tell folks about Eat the Rich? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, it is a, a podcast called Eat the Rich, um, and you can find us at, on Twitter at Eat the Rich Pod. You can find us on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, b- basically, it's an exploration and excavation of 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 our current political economy, which uh, broadly across the United States, excuse me, broadly across the world is capitalism and, um, you know, discussing its issues uh, and and ills and potential solutions. And and every episode specifically on our on our public episodes on uh, that we that we publish weekly, we focus on uh, an individual or a multinational corporation or, you know, a, a set of circumstances that we can kind of eke out a bit of understanding and, and sort of arm ourselves with more understanding and information about the world and political political economy in which we live. It's like the D&D monster manual, except for bad economic actors. <laughs> it's a great it's a great <laughs> pleasure because, you know, we and, and I'm uh, your, your programming has been featured on it a few times at this point because <laughs> we've had some compromat that yes, has come it, out of it. Every, every once in a while, you say something that when taken completely, oh, it's not just you, but it is primarily, primarily. You, that when taken <laughs> completely out of context, sounds really awful because you say it to be sarcastic. But if I just take your co-host reactions away, all of a sudden, it's just you espousing some awful position. And then I put that over a nice beat and everybody's over happy. a nice yeah. track from Sting's Ten Summoners Tales. Here's Sting to play. And everyone's yeah. happy with it. No, that, that's it's it's so funny. And it comes up all the time because I think. I think I realize now as as me, you know, I tend to be quite earnest and non-ironic on Twitter and try to kind of like stick to the facts. And anytime I do try to deviate to that, it just seems to fall on my face. 9-11 is just that's a spicy meatball. Here's Sting to play us out. I love the police. I love the police. I will very gladly vote for Joe Biden. I love the police. I love the police. I will very gladly vote for Joe Biden. I love the police. I love the police. There's only ever been one good vice president, and that was Dick Cheney. Cheney. So I, I try to avoid it, but um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been a great pleasure to be part of this project, especially in the last year or so when things just seem a bit bleak and we need a bit of solidarity and understanding amongst us, the working class, those that don't have the way that those that have have. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to participate in this with Shane and Chris. Uh, it's it's great. Yeah, and uh, definitely I'm glad you mentioned their names. Big uh, shout outs to your co-hosts, Shane and Chris, who are uh, you know absolutely uh, essential parts of that tripod. And there's often lots of great guests. And uh, I'm also a 
a Patreon member of Eat the Rich, and if you are, you get lots of extra content, which is which is really great, including kind of solo recordings by various members talking about issues, and then kind of uh, you know group group stuff as well. Uh, and I just I can't recommend it highly enough. It's also um, I'm not sure if this was communicated by us talking about it right just now, but it's also very very funny. <laughs> Thank you. And almost almost more than the information, the chance to hear three smart friendly people who obviously care about one another and can laugh together despite what's happening uh, is incredibly important. And I'm just like, even just from a self-care point of view, I really look forward to the podcast dropping each week because even though I don't know you guys personally um, and I'm not there when you record obviously (laughs) or anything, I do feel like I'm in the room and it does feel like, Oh, right. There are other people who also, you know, kind of think the way I think, who are able to maintain a sense of humor and who have obvious compassion both for one another and for the people about whom they're not the evil people about whom they're speaking, but the people who are being harmed by the monsters. And that's just I think that's incredibly important. We can. Yes, it's inside the bubble that I'm in for sure, but it's a really important part of the bubble. And I think it's important to remember that we need like we still need some laughter in yeah. our lives and you know we still need we need other compassionate human beings you 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 can't just be solitary and angry because it's not that's not a path to your own continued health so i really appreciate the podcast Jason, for that's, that that's you know for that as much very as kind of you to say and, and and yeah you're exactly right we we wouldn't be able to get through this without the solidarity that we have um and uh uniting ourselves as the members of the working class to uh to overcome the challenges that are being uh, thrown our way and and if I just I, I understand we're wrapping up. If, if I hope you don't mind me saying this, um, just Please. in a, in a in a, another uh, effort of earnestness, uh, one of the musicians that we we that played on Shadows and Light that we talked about today, we lost this year, and that was Lyle Mays, a longtime collaborator of Pat Metheny, and his music changed my life, and uh, I'll never forget the um, the time that my that my parents played for me. Uh, San Lorenzo, the last track of Travels on Pat Metheny's, the Pat Metheny yeah. Group album. And uh, the the solo and buildup that Lyle Mays um, does in that track, I mean, sold me and changed my life forever. And I, I think it's a, a great tragedy that we lost him at what was a relatively early age in the 60s. And Absolutely. so uh, a, a big rest in power to Lyle Mays. Well, we went from uh, w- Joni Mitchell's uh, Woodstock performance uh, putting the nail in the coffin of the 70s to the fact that the jazz industry has collapsed to the fact that everything else around it has collapsed as chronicled in Eat the Rich to the death of Lyle Mays. 
And so uh, I don't drink, but I think it might be time to start right after uh, the yeah, <laughs> recording say. of this show. Um, that's the eat the rich but promise. Despite the uh, <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> despite the tinge of darkness with which we ended this conversation, and by tinge I mean uh, overwhelming blanket of blackness. Um, I do want to encourage everybody who has listened to uh, us speak about this record. If you haven't heard Shadows and Light absolutely carve out some time to listen to it or to watch it and if you have heard it go back to it because it is just it is just such an absolute uh, joy and wonder from beginning to end to listen to this record and to listen to this group of musicians meld into one organic being playing at the absolute top of their powers and just obviously loving every minute of what they were doing. I mean, I cannot inside their heads, but I don't think it's possible to play music at this at this level. It's like on this record, if you're not fully kind of emotionally committed to it as well. well so, so, uh, so glad that you recommended this record because even just going back to it again this week to prepare to talk to you about it has been so great. And then it's caused me to you know go down the rabbit hole of other Joni Mitchell records that I really love and. Uh, so yeah, can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, my guest on this show has been Dwight from eat the rich, eat the rich and, uh, Dwight's Twitter and eat the rich and how to become a Patreon and all that stuff will be in the show notes of this episode. You can also find all of those show notes in, of course, whatever podcast player you're using, but also at the The jazz session also has a membership option, which you can find at the slash join. There are several different levels. You get uh, bonus stuff every week and the occasional little tchotchke uh, jazz session pins and that kind of stuff. And uh, actually, uh, a big part of how Owen and I live is because people choose to support the work um, that I do with the jazz session and a brief chat. So I thank you. Uh, Dwight, it's been such an absolute <laughs> pleasure for me to have you on the show. I, I just I was so excited to talk to you to talk to you in particular and to talk to you about this record. And it exceeded my expectations. So thanks so much for being here. Oh, likewise, Jason. What an honor. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Made a billion carbon We're golden We just got caught up in some devil's bargain And we gotta get ourselves back To the garden To some semblance of a garden